you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm on lockdown in Chicago. And on today's show, we've got Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher, love that alliteration, by the way, Stephen Brault talking about his passion for Broadway and his new album, which I plan to geek out on. And with me is a guy who is always on lockdown. He is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes in our Brooklyn Bureau. Gareth, how are you, my friend? Yo, I'm with you. I'm still observing uh, social distancing in the most paranoid, hardcore way we can. (laughs) <laughs> well, hey, Gareth, before we get to intro this week's guest, who is a doozy, this was an awesome uh, interview, one of my favorites that I've done uh, maybe in the last you know, several months. Uh, you had a quick rant. I wanted to make sure that I could say <laughs> the floor is uh, yours. Yeah, okay. Thank you for this. Um, I want to rant about Chris Hayes of MSNBC. And look, don't worry. This show hasn't taken a hardcore turn to right-wing politics <laughs> in this moment. My distraction this week's the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I do have another rant about the yeah. uh, co-option of the word boogaloo. Ugh. So but anyway, move, back to Chris Hayes. Chris, you live in Brooklyn. We used to take our kids to the same preschool. I saw you there a few years ago at K280. Great school. I'm sure you had a good experience with that. Actually, I dig your... Oh, I like what you're doing, but some of your social media of late has you're way on my radar and you need to back off some of the non-political stuff. I'm going to start. I think this one happened chronologically later, but it's the one I'm going to start with here. It was somebody was talking about the movie Sneakers and Chris Hayes tweeted out, is it okay like that this movie is like an all time guilty pleasure favorite of mine? And it was like, yeah, it's a great movie. No. Yeah, that's the problem, Brad. This is a generally accepted great movie. Like, <laughs> there is no guilty pleasure here. Like, as somebody actually started dragging him, was like, guys, don't tell anyone, but I think ice cream is a really tasty treat in the summertime. <laughs> you know, like, Sneakers is awesome. The cast is outrageous from top to bottom. Like, you have James Earl Jones in a bit part in a five minute scene at the end of the movie, and that's it. And five minutes might be. On the heavy side, he might be in there for three minutes. Like, Sneakers is an outrageously good movie that has stood the test of time. And admitting to liking it in public, it, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. People should be teaching courses on this movie. You shouldn't feel guilty. It's not a guilty pleasure movie. This is, like, a generally accepted great film. So that was the first, that was one of the things that he was saying. And the other one, which brings it back to sports or the sports media world, was during one of the early episodes of uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doc that has captured America's attention during the pandemic. And there are no sports going on and things like that. And Chris Hayes, media member who has his own show, tweets out, man, I can't believe I didn't get a Craig Elo interview for this doc out of the hundred interviews they did. And I wrote back to him, I was like, dude, I guarantee you they tried to get a Craig Elo interview. <laughs> yeah. But if you're Craig Elo, why would you ever do that interview? Like, th- like I've been a part of making these documentaries and you all, like there's 50 people that they probably reached out to that turned them down. Like, I don't think they got a Carl Malone interview for this. He wasn't on the list. Like Carl Malone played with this dude on the dream team, lost him in two finals. I think like, what like the point is you try to get all these guys, but you call up a guy like Craig Elo and in your head you're like, Oh yeah, Craig Elo's gonna want to be a part of this. And Craig Elo's like, No way I wanna be a part of this. Like it's just one quote where he's like, My entire life has been seen through the prism of the Michael yes. Jordan triumph over me. <laughs> exactly. I did an interview with Don Shula, RIP, yeah, for one of the uh Super Bowl teases. I think it was the Super Bowl forty seven tease where he was talking about Super Bowl experiences. And he was like, I will talk about the Super Bowls I won, but we're not talking about the ones I lost. 
And like I was young at the time, and that was the first time I'd heard somebody like that, like dictating the terms of the interview. And I was like, what? And then somebody stepped in. They were like, dude, you're doing this for a tease. Like, you don't need his whole life story. You need to talk. You basically need him talking about like, yeah, when they lifted me up on their shoulders, it was wonderful. Like, that's all you need. Yeah, right. You know? And so I would just say to Chris Hayes and to everyone, when you watch these docs, they've overturned every rock. And they've tried to get every interview. But like... I don't know. Joe Theismann not, might not want to talk about getting his leg broken again. Craig Elo definitely doesn't want to talk about Michael Jordan hitting that shot over him. Byron Russell probably doesn't want to talk about Michael Jordan hitting that shot over them because their entire life's achievements and the dream they had of playing in the NBA or the NFL or whatever sport gets reduced down to the worst moment of their life. And that's what they have to answer for for the rest <laughs> of their life. And so that's why they are not taking part in these docs. And rant. Okay, that's fair. All right, with that, the show must go on. And when I say the show must go on, I mean it. Because our guest today is Stephen Brolt. And Stephen has a new album, A Pitch at Broadway, that is 12 different show-stopping Broadway tunes that he's plucked and re-envisioned alongside a rock band. You'll hear him talk a little bit more about the style that he gives the songs, making them his own, why he chose what he chose. And look, it was a really in-depth, fun conversation. I mean, we get into it. I mean, I mentioned last week, Gareth, I felt bad that I didn't know enough about Jeff Blake's uh, solar and renewable energy uh, plans. This Not was, an issue. This was me getting back on the horse, bro. Yeah, <laughs> coming yeah, into yeah. coming in hot since my mom did uh, uh, choreography for shows back in the day. So anyway, enjoy the interview. And then afterwards, we're going to stick around for some distractions. And Gareth and I are going to hang with the musical theme here. We are going to talk about our all-time top five live concert favorite moments. In our, uh, oh, that's it. That's all I got to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, stick, stick around. around. We'll talk about it. <laughs> stick around. Yo, look, a, a lot of the interviews with you, I feel like, kind of start with like your kind of history with music and maybe like well-covered ground. I was just going to kind of dive right into the songs themselves and let things flow from there. Cause I got a lot of specific questions about why you chose what you chose, kind of some of the performance, um, you know, nuances of, of, of hearing it. And first things first, I mean, no, uh, no smoke. I thought it was, I thought it was great, man. You gotta be pretty proud of it. How's the reception been? It's been really good. And I, yes, I'm extremely proud of it. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny just hearing it, you know, we get the, we get the, you know, original just band uh, music together. And, you know, I did ghost vocals, so I'm like half singing, half talking. And it's just, you know, it sounds absolutely miserable, but we knew it wasn't going to be the vocals. We were going to use all that stuff. So I still have some of those recordings. It's funny. Um, but yeah, the final product is, is I'm very, very proud of it and very happy with it. So let me uh, get into the philosophy behind the album. Um, and specifically, this came to me as I heard you jump into Seasons of Love uh, from Rent. And I'm listening to the song and I'm like, okay, Cool, you know, whatever. And then it kind of occurs to me, I wonder why he didn't pick like one one song glory, which is more of like the singular showcase kind of soloist song from that uh, that musical. And it got me thinking about what was your philosophy behind choosing the right mix of songs for um, for this record? Were, were you more leaning into personal preferences? Was it more about giving a variety or, or thinking of things as as an album versus just song after song after song? Well, no, I think for me, it was personally, I wanted to do songs that uh, carry a lot of weight with them as far as um, kind of star power for some of them. Mm -hmm. And then for other ones, just songs that I do think are just very good songs in and of themselves. But Themes of Love specifically, I think is, you know, I, there are not many show tunes that you can go around and say 500, 25,600 minutes <laughs> and like, 80% of people will right. know what you're talking about. Even if they don't know musical theater, they'll be like, oh, that's that song. They might not even know that it's from a show, but they know the song. Um, and so that's why I thought, 
uh, it would be fun to do kind of our own, you know, a slightly different version of that song, but still have it be, you know, just seasons of love. You know, it's just, in my opinion, uh, Rent is a great movie and a great show, but that song really kind of outgrew the show itself, I think. Yeah, that's totally fair. And, and when you're thinking about the, you know, um, the album itself, how cognizant were you on the, the, the mix of styles and genres, the flow? I mean, it, it, these days we don't think about albums as a singular entity too often. We think singles, we think individual songs, individual downloads. But when you're kind of crafting this project together, how much are you stepping back and asking yourself, is this all working the way I want to as a, as a you know, as a sum of its parts? Yeah, um, well, so I was in a rock band in high school and we, you know, we came out with a few albums, we recorded a few albums. And that is honestly where I got kind of the practice of learning how to make an album actually work and, and what makes it kind of, you know, fun to listen to in one sitting. You know, if you mm -hmm. want to listen to an album, there needs to be it doesn't need to be like a perfect, you know, bleed into the other song. We're not talking about the Mars Volta here, or Led Zeppelin, but <laughs> it's it's a it's the idea of kind of being able to um get a feeling and you want a you want a feeling of a few songs maybe a little bit sad a few songs maybe a little bit happy and then there is a song that'll end you know bunk, and now you can change you know feelings and so mm -hmm. i think you know when we went over the album it was just kind of we worked together it wasn't a, it wasn't like my choice singularly but we worked together and and i i was happy with how the the order came out um but yeah i mean i I think that choosing the songs was a long, that was a long process. We started that in spring training of 2019 and didn't come up with our final list until, you know, probably about two weeks before recording. So um, it was, you know, we started with about 60 songs on that right. list of, you know, started just basically start with a list of shows that I like and, you know, specific songs that I, that I enjoyed um, that I that I thought would be good to do, um, and then we kind of broke it down from there. So it was uh, it was a that was a process, but um, it was a fun process. Just every kind of few days, be like, oh, let's take this off, you know, whatever. Did you do you remember the last few songs that maybe just missed the cut? Um. Yes. So we were we were, first of all we chose to do um, "You'll Never Walk Alone." That was the last song we chose to do, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a late addition to the list. Um, but we decided that it it's a song that, you know, talk about musical theater history. We wanted one song that really came from a long time ago. And it's just honestly more fun than doing there's no business like show business because <laughs> Ethel Merman is just, you know, in my head all the time with that show. So um, so uh, I would say with the Hamilton song we did, you'll be back. Um, we had like five Hamilton songs on the list that we were choosing from and decided to go with you'll be back. Um, the, the waitress song, um, it only takes a taste was a song that, um, I really enjoyed that I thought had a really good message. There are songs on the waitress soundtrack that I think I might like better. Um, but I thought that that, um, had a good message to it. You know, there's, I would have to, I don't think I have the list anymore, sadly, because we deleted songs from it. So we don't have like the original <laughs> list. Um, but yeah, so I mean, there were, there were plenty of songs that got cut pretty quick, but then there were some that, that definitely hung around. You mentioned You'll Be Back uh, and it's, uh, you already, you know, we, we talked about Season of Love, but you're, you're, you're tackling, you're not afraid to tackle really iconic material. And, and certainly Hamilton has become its own cultural phenomenon. As I'm listening to that, it's interesting to me to always see how performers choose um, which things maybe from the original recording you, you think of as sort of canon, like, hey, you got to roll the R here, you got to do this because that's kind of sacrosanct to the delivery. And, and where do you break from that and, and sort of make it your own interpretation? So as you're, as you're kind of tackling some of this really iconic material, uh, can you walk us through your thought processes for making it your own and, and sort of how you do that without losing the essence that people love about those songs in the first place yeah well one of the things that we strove to do from the beginning was give the sound of uh, of, of a band playing these songs so not a symphony playing you know we have like in the greatest show i mean it's a huge production just because that's how that song was and if you if you stripped it down to to guitar bass drums piano it's just not going to sound nearly as good so you know that one fun high production value definitely took the longest to edit to add in all the other parts but 
Um, you know, when it comes to songs like like You'll Be Back, where we could kind of strip it down and make it almost sound like a, you know, a pop rock song, you know, with a musical that is from musical theater instead of it being specifically a show tune show tune, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, so we added there's guitar in there. You know, there's there's, uh, you know, we have, like you said, I rolled the R in that one part because I feel like it's a perfect way to put it. It's canon. Like it has to be there. Remember we made an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember despite our estrangement, I'm your man. But like, you know, I didn't do like a heavy British accent to the whole thing or anything like that because I thought that, you know, we're, we are trying to make it our own. And I think a lot of ways, a, a, a big way you can make it your own and still give credit to the original person is by putting your own spin on it and then adding in like the the homages throughout it and you know roll the r um maybe go in falsetto you know following him a little bit but you can still change it up a little bit um so i think that uh, you know i i did the best i could and i love singing that song i've sung it live now a few times in different places and i think every time i sing it a little bit different because when you sing live you know there's a little bit more just kind of go with the flow feel to it but um yeah and the recording you have to make it sound perfect while also making your own which is a very strange thing to go back and forth <laughs> another one that i think is interesting too is i mean you, you took on music of the night I, i'm a phantom fan i love that show i know it's kind of uh in vogue now to sort of dunk on angela weber but i, I you know I, I still have a lot of heart for that song in particular and i find it to be I, i'm guessing much more complex um, to perform because on the one hand, it's the most soaring kind of expression of the Phantom as, as artist. And yet it's very early in the show and you're still in that phase where you're kind of introducing the darker elements of the character and you've got to give them that edge. How do you find, how, when you're singing that song, how do you find that edge? And, and I guess I, to put it another way, how much Phantom is just too much Phantom for that song? You know, at some point you got to let the music take over, right? Yeah. Um, I think that what a lot of people can, the, the way that you can ruin a song is by making it too much about you or the character instead of making it about uh, the the beauty of the music itself. Hmm. Um, and that song has, you know, it has instrumental parts where there is no singer for a little while where you just get to feel the flow of the music. But um, a lot of it is, most of that song is sung in a quieter tone in which you're, you know, trying to convince um uh, what's her name? What is her name? Christine, Leash. right? Christine, yeah. I couldn't get Elizabeth out of my head for a <laughs> So um, you're trying to convince Christine that that you know you're not a bad guy. You know, I promise I'm not a bad guy. Um, but really, also you should be evil with me. So it's like a weird kind of <laughs> uh, back and forth. But um, you know, so I'm a big fan. We did the the movie version, the lyrics of the movie version, not the musical version, because I think honestly, in my personal opinion i think the lyrics are better in the movie version the gerard butler uh version of it but oh i didn't um, realize they were different that's fascinating yeah so it's not it's it's not like the whole song is different i think that there's either an extra verse in the musical or there's just one of the verses is some of the words are just changed around it's just a little bit different but um so you know we have some liberties that we can take and i thought you know once again, it's it's Gerard Butler's not an amazing singer, um, but, you know, he puts a lot of passion into it. So I kind of tried to follow him a little bit in far as far as like the way that he goes through the song with his changes in anger and, you know, sadness and pleading and all that stuff. Um, but the way that I get into it, especially with that song, is I in the recording studio, I turn off all the lights. So it's completely dark in there. Um, so I, you know, I have all the words memorized. I know it's, it's like being on a show. Like you can't really give it your all if you're reading the words in front of you. So, um, I, yeah, I, I did as best I could, <laughs> you know, you got to create that emotion without having anybody around you to share the emotion with. Um, and I think the best way to do that is putting yourself in a pitch black room and singing in the, the void. <laughs> you know, that's interesting to get into the mindset. You know, Phantom is such a gothic and like over the top show from a set piece perspective that I could imagine that would that would help you get grounded in the character. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you about I Believe, because I, I, I loved this song. I loved your rendition of it. Um, but I also know 
it's really hard to be funny <laughs> in song in the right way. I, like you, you mentioned before about you let the character take over. You can also just overly ham a, a punchline, and especially without the benefit of an audience. I mean, if, if it, you know, you'll be back is a great example, right? You, you nail it. The audience is going crazy. You can start hamming it up, uh, you know, like Tim Curry, um, you know, in, um, in Rocky Horror, and people are going to want right. more of it. But in the studio, yeah. you've got to retain like a sense of balance. So how, how did you find the sweet spot for capturing the humor of that song, even though that song flow, that humor flows from like real earnestness? Yeah. So, okay. Um, I performed that song in my junior recital in college. Um, <laughs> and I, I really had a lot of fun with that. I, I had a lot of friends there, obviously. And, um, you know, I, I actually, when I performed that song, I actually walked uh, through the, through the crowd and uh, like a rock show and uh, sang it specifically to people, <laughs> um, which was really fun. Um, but I, so I kind of try to take that attitude into it because like you said, the the comedy of that song is that he's completely serious about it you know um and that's why it's so funny is not because he's making these crazy funny gestures or making an actual joke you know he's he's not trying to be funny this is a serious song that is funny because it is so ridiculous right that is why it is funny and so the best way i think to really make that stand out is to sing that song in the character of i'm completely earnest and trusting and loving and that is the best way the comedy comes through i think in that song Yeah, I remember when, you know, seeing like when Andrew and Josh Gad were doing that on um, Broadway, um, they would kind of joke about how Josh started to lose the lines after almost a year on stage. He just started to blank on some stuff. You mentioned, um, you know, your background in theater going back to to college and high school. Have you ever I guess what, what would be your most awkward moment in a production where it doesn't have to be forgetting a line, but like something weird happened. And you just had to plow through. Okay, well, I have I have a few. So, one I can say I was I was in uh, Damn Yankees when I was in high school, and this was not super bad on me. But you know, my friend is one of my friends. Uh, his name is Andrew. He's playing the devil, and his little sister Laura is playing Lola. And at, you know, there's a point in the show where the devil kind of gives a monologue, um, and basically, you know, Joe Hardy comes in, who I was playing uh, middle mid monologue, and kind of interrupts things, but. So it's going on and uh, Lola is supposed to have a line and she completely forgot. And, um, you know, she just blanked and it happens. And uh, Andrew just did an amazing job of improving and, you know, kind of making her laugh, which made the crowd laugh. And I got to go in and we completely we just it was a different scene, which we eventually <laughs> said the last line of the scene, you know, to end it. Um, but that was more the fun one I had. When I was in like eighth grade, I did a talent show where we did uh, Think of Me from uh, Fan of the Opera. Is that oh, yeah, called? yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this girl who was – I was at my church talent show, and there was this girl who was in 11th grade, and she asked me to do the, the can it be, can it be Christine, that part, right? It's a, uh -huh. such a short part. There's literally like three lines. So she does the, we rehearse a bunch. She does the whole thing. I come in mid song. I enter stage and then just totally forgot. Just froze, <laughs> completely froze. Stood there for the 12 seconds or whatever that my part was. And then just walked off stage and just cried. And I was, I was embarrassed. And I was so like, I could, I was so, I was, I felt so bad for her that I ruined her performance and uh, and she was very nice about it, which was which is helpful. But, you know, that's kind of a moment that has stuck with me. But also, like, it never made it it never made me not want to do it. You know, I, right. I still loved it. And uh, I think that's something that comes from being a competitor in baseball and stuff like that, where it's like I screwed it up. That means. All right. Let like I'm I'm going to do that. I'm going to show that I can do this, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the joy of. um what's the term spanking the boards or whatever, you know, like, I mean, you, you get yeah, out there, you yeah. do it live and um, you got to roll with it. I could see how you'd be drawn to that part of it, which I guess leads me to the question of 
how different is recording these in studio versus the experience of um, you know being in front of an audience? Well, recording in studio is very fun. The process is really fun. You know, you get to, especially the way that we did it. A lot of times, you know, you're going to have the studio musicians come in separately and, you know, they all record their parts or whatever. But we decided because I wanted to make sure that these songs are going to be my versions of these songs, um, that we had the whole band actually together for a week in studio. Um, And we were able to, we literally, we were playing the songs live. You know, we, we, that's the way we recorded the songs live all together at the same time. Um, we obviously added on tracks afterwards for violins and stuff like that. But um, the original, you know, the guitar, bass, piano, drums, that's all played together at the same time. And um, I think that mate was really important. And, you know, they're absolutely amazing studio musicians that have been doing it for a really long time. And the cool part was, you know, they they understood me at first, you know, they're like, oh, baseball player going to come sing, whatever. But I think (laughs) after, you know, the first, you know, hour or so of of me actually singing and actually showing that I have music knowledge, you know, I studied this. I don't I I know like when we're talking about things in in a musical context, I'm not just, you know, I have some experience in it. So um, so we were able to build trust pretty fast. And, you know, we, we, I think it, it worked out really well. And then that part of it is super fun. But then for the next five days or so after that, I was in a box alone singing all the lead vocals by myself Uh with the sound engineer in the other room, uh, you know, and my producer and I do something and then we'd go back and, you know, like, Oh, that was great. You know, let's do it again. You know, like that kind of stuff, because it's all, when you record something, you know, it has to be perfect. There can't be any, any weird inflections. There can't be any little mistakes that on a stage, you're not even going to notice. You're not going to know that it happened, but in an album, like on an album, you'll hear it because there's, there's nothing taking your eyes away. You know, you're not being entertained. You're just listening to this music. So it's uh it's a much different experience. It's, it's still fun and it's a cool experience, but like, you know, it can be a little bit frustrating at times. It can grate on you a little bit, you know. But yeah, I'm. Uh, I loved it. But I also love baseball, which sucks a lot. So you know, <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. Uh, you know, look, you mentioned baseball. Your your teammate uh, Josh Bell's on the album at one point. I think I'd read other teammates wanted to get on there with you. How many people kind of solicited for their their spot? Yeah, uh, Trevor Williams for sure asked me like a million times, and he still wants. <laughs> he really wants to be on the second album. Uh, so whatever you know, whenever that happens, I'll probably let him have a little spot. Um, but then Cole Tucker, uh, he grew up playing drums and guitars. He wanted to be on it. Problem is, we have like you know one of the best drummers in the world uh, playing the, on it, Vinny Caliuta and Kenny Aronoff were two of the best studio musicians playing drums ever. So it's like, I'm sorry, like, I'm sure you're great, but you know, ugh. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, Jameson Tyone would like to be on it. I don't know. It's probably in a joking capacity because I don't think Jamo has any musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> um, but neither did Josh. You know, I mean, Josh isn't a musician. Uh, we used you know, we, we did a spoken word part. I just thought his voice would be perfect for it, and it was. Ain't no compass, brother. Ain't no map. Just a telephone wire and a railroad track. Keep on walking and don't look back until you get to the bottom land. Wait for me. I'm coming. Wait. And, you know, he, he worked really hard. You know, it was not an easy process. He's obviously never been in a recording studio. He's never stood in front of a microphone. He's never heard himself, you know, while, while talking and all that stuff and put emotion into it. So it was, it was a, I think it was a really fun process for him to do that song. And we were there, you know, we were, I was on the phone with him the entire time uh, to kind of guide him through it and stuff, but it, it was cool. Yeah. I was, I was really happy that he, he wanted to do it. Like, do you have a dream collaborator that someone who's on your radar that you're like, I got to do something with so-and-so at some point? I mean, there's a lot, you know, <laughs> I mean, I really like music, so it's very hard to pick out one. Obviously it'd be really cool to do something with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I, obviously mm-hmm. that would just be really cool. Cause you know, star power. Um, I think, I think it would be really cool to, I, you know, I'm a big rock fan. I would love to do something with like, 
you know, Brandon Boyd from Incubus or, you know, I, I, I marked off the Adam Pascal note, so I can, I have that one done. So that's good. Um, I, I don't know. There's just think of, think of all the bands you like, wouldn't it be cool to play with them? Like, yeah, of course it would be, you know, um, we're going to, I think we're trying to do something, uh, with the folks from Hades town, uh, Josh and I doing a little bit of, uh, of, of a, some kind of online performance with with uh, the guys who are on the Broadway show and and possibly doing uh with an AS as well so we'll see dude that would be awesome by the way Incubus a uh, very underrated live band I remember seeing them years ago and and Brandon like sat down at a drum kit at one point and like three different drummers were just having like a like a back and forth for like an extended 20 minute drum break it was pretty great yeah I actually saw that I've seen Incubus twice and the first time I saw them so they're my favorite band growing up and the first time I saw them, uh, they were not good. So oh, really? I think they were like like super hammered and <laughs> uh, like tired. It was probably near the end of the tour, and Brandon Boyd's voice was just gone. And uh, so then a few years later, I saw them again, and they were absolutely incredible. So I was like, well, I'm glad that I that I fixed that opinion of them for myself. Um, a couple of just last final questions. I was fascinated to see you tackle Defying Gravity, um, especially because I think it was a bold choice to sort of you know, uh, not be in your head about the gender roles there to take on the iconic material. Um, what was the thought process behind tackling that song specifically and reinterpreting it, reimagining it um, in character, even though you're you're doing it from a male perspective? Uh, okay, so I don't think that the whole, um, like, when it comes to music, um, obviously it would be tough to have a uh, male alphabet in a show. Um, just because of, you know, she would have to have a female roommate and all that stuff. You'd have to literally change the entire show. But I think when it comes to one specific song, I, I think it, it works just fine. And, you know, I that's one of my favorite moments in any show I've ever seen is the end of Defying Gravity when she's floating up on the broom and, you know, everybody's crying in the audience and she's belting out Defying Gravity. It's just so cool. So... Um, it was something that I, you know, I knew I wanted to do and I was nervous at first. Um, so we had to do a little bit of finagling on that song. We, we actually, um, we raised the key by a full step and then I sung it, uh, in the octave below mm. is the way we did it. And then some parts I made my own because it does get, it would get pretty low for me since I am a tenor. So that song I wanted to there because I wanted to have a female counterpart. So if I was going to have a male counterpart, then I could have, um, I could have raised it more um, or I could have even just lowered it maybe a full step and I probably could have sang it there. Um, but because I wanted to have a female, that means I needed to, to still be in her range. So uh, we decided we, you know, we found a Caitlin Caporal who was on the voice in season eight and she's got a banging, you know, alto voice that she can really get up there. And, um, and we, you know, I think that it worked out really well. It's it's a song. It's you know when you take it apart from the album itself, it's it's a, a beautiful song that I just really wanted to sing. Yeah, and look, you got a lot of styles on here too. I mean, you got everything from like more contemporary shows, like Dear Evan Hansen, things like that. You, you mentioned Carousel, like the more trademark standards. Do you have a go-to kind of subgenre of Broadway that is what you would say is your your favorite? Um, yeah, I guess I guess so. Um, so I don't I don't watch shows as much as I probably should. Um, obviously right now nothing's happening anyway. But uh, I love listening to soundtracks of shows because I am one of the crazy people that does listen to full albums, and so I like shows because it gives you the story of the show you know with music which is fun um except dear evan hansen which if you don't read the plot and you listen to the music first you have no idea that it's a super depressing show it, it really doesn't say it in the music very well um but it's a uh you know it, it's just kind of i guess fun to to go through it and i i guess my shtick when it comes to musicals would be more contemporary um i really like shows that have uh, their own style of music. So like Hades Town, um, which I love the Broadway version, of course, but I'm a big fan of the original version 
where it's just a very, you know, just straight up bluegrass, you know, music getting played. And I, I love all of that stuff. So I think when you have a theme of a show, Catch Me If You Can is all jazz. It only takes a taste is, you know, some jazz mixed with some some show tune stuff. Um, so I think that when you put a certain inflection on the show, I think it really it really helps rent rock music. You know, a fan of the opera is a straight up rock opera, which is sick. Um, so yeah. I, I just really enjoy all that stuff. Yeah. Where do you stand on Sondheim? I feel like he's the most polarizing, right? Yeah. I, so I, I sang Sondheim plenty in, in, uh, in college because mm-hmm. I think you have to, um, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's required source material. And I think he has some great shows. Um, but Sondheim is not really, I, I guess I haven't, I don't know if I've actually seen many Sondheim shows. Um, most of this, most of the music I've done has been singular songs from shows. Um, but of course, yeah, I respect the hell out of Stephen Sondheim because he's, you know, written so many incredible shows, but um, not necessarily somebody that I listen to a lot. So to close out, I mean, look, you gave me a lot of time. I really appreciate it. Uh, what's your, what's the plan now? And knowing that, uh, you know, everything is up in the air, you know, a lot of people within uh, bo- both walks of your life in the sports world and the, um, uh, and the music world are kind of holding their breath, waiting to see what's next. So how how do you plan to try and carry forward the momentum of? I mean, look again, the album is is great. You're very proud of it. Um, but where where can you take this? Have you started to kind of revise your thinking about how to stay active, um, even as as there's uncertainty around when the season's going to start? Well, so I'm still in Florida, um, and I still go to the our spring training facility four times a week to work out and throw. Um, but there's only like five of us here right now, but, uh, you know, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. However, they can stay ready for the baseball season. When it comes to the music, I, you know, I, this happened all happened so fast. And, you know, I, I did this album and then I got to sing in with the Pittsburgh symphony right before spring training started. And then, you know, that we were so excited about we had a release party up in pittsburgh at the hard rock um you know we had all these plans and and you know the the album sells itself when you get free marketing by pitching on national tv you know all that stuff um and then uh you know the world stopped so for right now we're doing what we can um just I, I love the music and I listen to the music and I hope other people love it and listen to it as well. But, you know, whenever the world starts turning again, that's when I guess uh, you know, we'll really start to think about what, what we're going to do moving forward. Well, man, hey, look, congratulations. Again, thank you for giving me all this time. I just had a lot of fun breaking it down. And um, look, like I said, the album's great. So I hope you I hope you feel great about it. And uh, we're happy to help spread the word. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Brad. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things. And then we, the fans, tell them, stop being interesting. You're being a distraction. Get back to watching game films. So on this show, we uh, end every week by telling you what's been distracting us. And Gareth, look, man, I had a lot of fun doing the mixtape thing a couple weeks ago. I, I don't know about you. I really yep, annoyed no, my that wife. Was a blast. I annoyed my wife by making her listen to it. She's like, bro. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't need to hear you guys debating Liz Fair. Um, so we wanted to get back on this horse, and with Stephen on the show, what better time to talk about music? So you and I are going to run down our top five live concert moments, and let's uh, let's go through the ground rules here. Had to okay. be a moment, like a song, right? Didn't, but I can. I mean, I can adapt it to that. Okay, uh, and we get some it's, leeway. It's, it's, I mean, I just didn't yeah. want it to be like. Hey, I saw this show, and we're like, cool. <laughs> okay. Right, right, right. Great. Right. How was it? It was good. <laughs> yep. No, I, I listen. I've got some. I made some notes along those lines, and some of it's going to get pretty annoying. I can't wait. Any uh, any notable omissions? Like I, okay, I should t- set this up for our our listeners too. For those who don't know, I was a concert critic for the Peoria, Illinois Journal Star for four years. You know, almost directly out of college. And that sounds mm-hmm. super lame, but we were like an arena rock town. I mean, so stuff that didn't make my list was like, you know, Metallica, you know, Aerosmith, you know, all those like 
those dinosaur bands like REO Speedwagon and Journey would come through town. Um, Alice Cooper, uh, you know, you know, came through. So I, I did actually, you play golf with Alice Cooper? I did play golf with Alice Cooper. Shockingly good golfer, also shockingly dedicated golfer. I think his band. Uh, we, that, that, was, that's like his whole thing now. Like he's like golf saved my life, right? He basically like swapped out one addiction for golf addiction. <laughs> this is the way yeah. his guitarist kind of playfully put it to me. Um, mm. Yeah, no, good, good dude. Go, go, go back and check the uh, Julie Stewart Binks episode few a uh, few weeks back because she she gets uh, super nerded out on Alice Cooper. Okay, man. Uh, those first couple Alice Cooper albums are great. Oh yeah, all time great. Classic. Listen, yeah. Uh, what didn't make your list? What's what's like on your short list but didn't quite get over the hump? Well, I guess one that I should throw. Uh, I was going to drop this in deference to the guest this week, Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher Stephen Brawl. Listen. Seeing the original Broadway cast of Hamilton, including Lynn Manuel Miranda, um, it's not a concert, but like that's that was pretty great, and that stands out as much as the, like my daughter, who's now gotten really into Broadway musicals and Hamilton, is endlessly jealous of my wife and I for that. Like she keeps talking about like I can't believe you saw them, you know. So that's one that was omitted just based on the parameters of the exercise, but that I get to now not so humbly brag about. So the, the, the last one that didn't make my list was we saw vanilla ice in a bar and like song three, he did ice ice baby. And we just peaced out. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, I, I remember, I literally remember saying to one of my friends, well, I'm going to go ahead and guess he's not going to do ninja rap. And that's the only other thing I wanted to do. <laughs> so let's let's yeah. get out of here. Um, all right, you want to start? You want me to start? Oh, and we—I think we also are going to talk about our worst moment, right? Uh oh, yeah. That that I need the worst moment because it pays off one of my best moments. Okay, we'll do the worst. So. Last. All right, here's my number five. Okay, Na- narrowly beating out Vanilla Ice. <laughs> it was. A show that I don't think people would guess would crack my list, but was undeniably everything that a show needs to be. And I'm talking about when I saw Cher in Peoria. Hmm. Now, look, Arena Rock. So we're talking like 13,000 people, dudes in costumes, people dressed up like Navy sailors, or else they were Navy sailors, but you know we we're a pretty landlocked area. I'm guessing it was just everyone kind of like into the vibe of Cher. And, you know, she rolls out. She does, like, kind of her through the years or whatever. But the singular moment that was awesome is when, you know, in between her songs, she would disappear for a costume change and, like, Cirque du Soleil or whatever would do kind of crazy stuff. It was a really theatrical show. All of a sudden, she she rolls out in the exact outfit from the Turn Back Time video with the hair and everything, the fishnets, and just rolls into that song. And I've never heard an arena erupt like that. And I just remember being like, look, I'm not really a share guy, but this is everything you would want from this particular show. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. That is one moment where everyone can agree that like, I wish I could be there for that one moment. Yeah. I mean, also a little self-conscious being the only dude at the share show sitting by myself, taking notes because I was going (laughs) to review it. But that's a different. I was also that at a Slater show, and equally, uh, equally just unnerved. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. All right, so. you're you're number five. Um, my number five, and I'm just going to get this out of the way because I brought it up recently. Uh, it was on the mixtape show. It was talking about going to see my first concert, which was Nine Inch Nails, December 29th, nineteen ninety four. This was the song, or this was the moment where I was like, uh, I don't know if I have a specific song, but just. That was my first concert, and I remember, if you want a specific moment, there was this whole, there's this scrim that Trent Reznor was performing behind, and it was like this chest being projected on there, like, not like a person's chest, but like an old chest of, like, with stuff inside of it, and he was singing, I forget what song it was, but halfway through, it was really, it was like one of those brooding, dramatic songs that starts out slow and then gets big, and like halfway through they made it look like blood was dripping on it. And the whole thing started rippling. And I was like 
15 years old and my mind was blown, <laughs> dude. It was just, it, I had never seen anything like this, the theatricality of it. And then the scrim came up and he performed at the end of the song. It was near, I think it was like the end of like, if you will, the, the first act of the concert. He grabbed the keyboard, threw it up in the air. It landed and broke in a million pieces. Like keys were flying everywhere and he walked off stage. And again, like I'm 15 and I just never seen anything like this. They played for two hours and, you know, I was just floored by the whole thing. So like that is your first concert. Um, Nine Inch Nails on that tour with all the theatrics went along with it. Just blew my head off. So that's my number five moment in my first concert. Yeah, and still, I'm pretty convinced I sold you that ticket because my mom wouldn't let me go. So shout Thank out you to did. shout out to Bobby Burke. Uh, okay, thanks, Bobby. <laughs> my number four. I saw Kanye West in Bloomington, Ooh. Illinois. I went there with this kid that I was tutoring, and uh, I got like awesome tickets because I was reviewing the show. So I was like row three, you know. Mm-hmm. Now he had just finished a European tour, and clearly. Someone told him he was back in Chicago. <laughs> he was he was not. I do like the idea that you saw Kanye in Illinois, but not in Chicago. I'm I'm like 95% certain he thought he was at like Rosemont Arena in the Burbs. Mm-hmm. Because he kept being like, it's so good to be home. And like I just just laying it on real thick. And I'm like, Right. I mean, maybe maybe he was just like, Hey, I came from Brussels and Illinois is close enough. Um, but to this day, I've always thought he thought he was back in Chicago and he really delivered. I mean, he played like two hours. And from what I understand, yeah. from other people who have seen Kanye it can be a little hit or miss. But the coolest mm-hmm. thing he did was he got done with his encore and then the house lights came up and people were kind of getting ready to go. But he was just still on the stage and he just started being like, all right, I'm glad to be home. Like, what do you all want to hear? And we're oh. like, what? And then it was quiet. And then people started just throwing song titles out and he's like uh-huh uh-huh and then he walks back to his dj and they just do like 30 45 seconds of like three songs in a row and then he did the whole thing again so it was like wow a completely laid bare stripped down uh encore dictated by the fans i've never i've still never seen something like that happen at like an arena show uh to have that level of like kind of intimacy or experience directly with the fans was was awe-inspiring honestly that's really cool yeah i wish that guy still existed (laughs) all right all right uh you're number four uh my number four i'm gonna get this one out of the way too like i i am gonna go unlike the mixtape or any of the stuff we've talked about in the past i am gonna go with fish here because i as i said a few weeks ago i saw a lot of fish in the '90s during their peak. I even saw how much the, fish. How many shows, Gareth? Like 25. Like I, again, I stopped before it got unreasonable, but I saw some all-time classics. Like I saw 12, 30, 97. I did the entire '97 holiday run, which featured the 30th was like all these crazy bust outs, like songs they hadn't played in forever. And then, similar to your point, they had they had gone past curfew after the end of the second set. So when they came out for the encore, they said, we're just going to stay here till it's after midnight and we can play till New Year's Eve. And they played like an hour long curfew uh, encore. <laughs> like they just played like basically a third <laughs> set. It was similar to what you're talking about with Kanye, but, um, but it was just one know, song, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. But my favorite, like I have two uh, that I was trying to decide and I think that I would have to go with uh, uh, which show was my favorite to look back on. Uh, sorry, 4398 of the Island Tour. I will go with August 13th, 1996. Mike's song at Deer Creek in Indianapolis. That's when, I don't know. I don't know. That song, that 20-minute performance. Yes, Brad, you can make the jokes on that. <laughs> of that song was so dark and so <laughs> loud. Uh, and I was 16 years old, almost 17. I just, I never heard anything like it. And that went in that sort of like strange 
improvisational territory. It got so far out there. Um, I was floored. That whole show was unbelievable. Uh, but that particular song was my all-time favorite. You can find it on Spotify if you'd like to relive the moment. I do about once a year. It's probably the only fish song I go listen to about once a year. Um, so that would be my answer. Fish, eight thirteen ninety six. There you go. All right, my number three. I think two nights before the Kentucky Derby of 2003, I went to a bar in Louisville called called Jillian's or Julian's. And in the parking lot of the bar, I saw Bob Dylan play. And it was outdoors, like in between these two bars. It was crazy. It was super like intimate. You just walk up the stage. It was awesome. And I, 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 I believe that he started the encore with like a Rolling Stone. And I was just like, mm-hmm. awesome, finally, like, a song that I know of his. Yep. And I just think there's something about seeing one of the most iconic artists playing one of the most iconic songs. And I just remember thinking, well, this will be something I'll talk about the rest of my life. Like, I saw Bob Dylan, I saw this song, and I saw it at a bar <laughs> in a parking lot. Yeah. Not at, like, some weird like artificial like place where you don't really have a sense for you, you, where you can't truly soak up who he is. It was, it was actually pretty cool. That's awesome. I'm glad you got that experience. I've seen him a few times and the last time I saw him, which was actually this past fall, it was like, that was a good show, but he does play whatever he wants. So the fact that you got to hear like a Rolling Stone is pretty great. My friends were annoyed. Cause I kept being like, play hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> they're like he's played hurricane since 1979 or some shit like that. I was like, I don't right, care. Right. All right. All right. Um, my number three, I just it was the band of my 30s. Like I saw a lot of good contemporary bands in little Brooklyn places like the Parquet Courts or my favorite, the OCs at some place in Williamsburg that I forget the name of that has since gone out of business. And it was just one of those, if you've never seen the OCs or heard of them, probably the latter, um, John Paul Dwyer is their lead singer. He's known for putting on crazy live shows, eating the microphone, screaming, things like that. This was one of those nights. And it was just seeing an electrifying performer in a super small venue. Um, It's one of the reasons you move to a place like New York. So that would be my my third it was the night that uh lou reed died and i just remember him coming out for the encore and being like man it sucks that lou reed died and we're playing in brooklyn on the night lou reed died and i'd love to play a lou reed song but we'd fuck it up and i have to think there's so many bad lou reed velvet underground covers happening tonight i don't want to be a part of that so i want to acknowledge it but just say we're not going to do that and i thought that was such a cool move All right, dude, my number two, you and I were there together, Bogarts in Cincinnati, porno porno for pyros. I was a huge Jane's Addiction stan and still am. And all I can say is when... The original album was like the, the before Entourage song. Right, and the, like, I like porno for pyros. I liked that show. But when he said, here comes the testosterone, and they ripped into Mountain Song, yep. I just remember being like, cool, I feel like I saw Jane's Addiction. I'll take it. <laughs> Baby, I loved that show. I loved Perry sitting on the stage for Kimberly Austin. Um Years later, I would have, like, I saw some uh, Stephen Perkins side projects. I, talk, I talked about the, the Perry meeting a few weeks ago and how that was, like, a great rock star meeting. Similarly, I think those guys just were good rock stars. I was at some Stephen Perkins show years later. They were opening for some band I was seeing. And he was walking around. I was like, Stephen Perkins, man, I loved you in jeans. And then Porno, he's like, fuck yeah, man, have a sticker. It was like, dude, you guys are the best rock stars. (laughs) So there's no word I would change in that. (laughs) So fuck yeah, have a sticker. All right, uh, your number two. My number two was a few years ago. My wife and I. My wife loves Rufus Wainwright, and I do too. But she loves him, and so 
Every year he plays Carnegie Hall around Christmas time. One year he was doing a lot of Judy Garland songs, things like that. So she's always wanted to go. So I think it was it was before we had kids. So I think it was like 2010. We went to Carnegie Hall to hear Rufus Wainwright that December. And set one, he did two sets in an encore. Set one was this weirdo art performance. And the guy in front of us was coughing so loud the whole time that like people were asking him to leave and he wouldn't. And so it was weird. It kind of it really fucked up the vibe. Set two was like, he played a bunch of hits. That was great. We got to hear all the hits we came for. Then he came out for, uh, for the encore. And he was talking and he was like, his mother had just died. She, both his parents were musicians and folk musicians in the seventies. And he talked about his mother and how much she meant to him and that he wanted to play one of her songs because he's like, as he put it, what I miss most about my mother is her talent. She wrote the best songs. And so I'm going to play this song by her, the walking song. And it was about, she wrote it for my father and it's about their love affair. And so this is a song I'd never heard before. And he got about halfway through singing it, and I was just, I was overwhelmed by how beautiful the song was and how great and simple the lyrics were. Like, basically takes as a metaphor for a relationship a walk in the woods. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I was, man, this song is gorgeous. Is anyone else feeling this? And I looked up next to me at my wife, and tears are just pouring down her face. And then I look around. And everyone in Carnegie Hall is crying at this song. And it was, it was amazing. It was, a, it, was a, it was an unbelievable moment like where we're all feeling the same thing about a song that nobody in the room had probably heard. And it ends. And we were all just sort of like left as like these empty husks, not knowing what to do with <laughs> ourselves. And then he just comes running back out on stage. He's like, oh, come on, I'm not going to leave you like that, and played, like, some Broadway show to, <laughs> to finish the night, like, so everyone would leave in a good mood. But it was one of the most electrifying group moments in, that you're always looking for in a concert setting uh, that I've ever experienced, and my number two moment of all time. So Yeah, the, kind of the same thing happened to me when I saw Slipknot. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> so, all right. Look, I understand that Rufus Wainwright is a number two is a bit of a left field pick, but oh my God, that thing came out of nowhere and crushed me. So, well, <clears throat> my number one is the opposite of a left field pick, man. I am like straight up the middle seeing eye single on brand for, for me and this show. I saw REM. The only time I ever saw him was on the monster tour outdoor Columbus. What was the name of that pavilion? Polaris. Oh, Polaris. Yeah, Polaris yeah. Amphitheater. Yeah. Drove through with a bunch of friends. We we're gonna crash. Kind of the first time my mom let me do a like an overnight. I was a sophomore in high right, school. Right. And <clears throat> there were lots of great moments. Like, you know, they, they when they kind of went back to Orange Crush, played some, uh, played some automatic. Like, just I feel like th that era of REM was just really great. Mm -hmm. And the monster stuff sounded great live. It sounded a lot better live than maybe on the on the CD. It's a super cliche moment, but it was a cloudy night all night. And then they played Man on the Moon and he kind of pointed up and everyone looked up and it like full moon, like all the clouds parted for some reason, which sounds like super douche and like the type of thing you would like misremember over the years. But I swear it happened. It no, just, I mean, th those things happen, man. It's it's the but, magic of live music. But to your point, the, it wasn't that that happened and it was cheese ball. It was the reaction. It was like he pointed up and then the entire amphitheater looked up, saw that. And then he like just exploded, like just like right. it, like everyone being like, oh, of course, like yeah. And I don't right. know. I mean, I don't. It's not really one of my favorite songs, but as a as a singular moment of shared experience, it was really great. And it was my all time favorite concert, so I had to go. I mean, it wasn't going to roll out with like when Alice Cooper played Poison. <laughs> it might have. I might have been more excited, maybe. But come on. I can play the hits. Here. No, I, listen, I understand the feeling 100%. Like you just said, it gets to the shared experience of a concert, which is really what you're going for in that moment. It's why you go see live music um, in a big venue or a small venue. So I'm with you. All right, you're number one. So 
one of the things about working the Super Bowl when your network has it is you see Super Bowl halftime rehearsal. And so, you know, one Super Bowl, I saw The Who, which they were kind of outshined by their set or their stage. Another one was the uh, Beyonce Destiny Child, Destiny's Child reunion. But my best live music moment, and this gets into family stuff too, as you'll hear, it was Super Bowl 50. And that was the one in San Francisco. And on Thursday, we had seen the rehearsal with Beyonce and Coldplay and Bruno Mars. And so Friday, my sister and brother-in-law, they hadn't yet married. But they were living in the Bay Area. They happened to come visit me at the Super Bowl compound. And I turned to them and I was like, let's go in and see if we can catch the halftime rehearsal. And we walked in. We got on the right side, the correct side to watch the whole thing because I had been on the wrong side the day before. And we sat down about halfway up. The only other person in our row, in our entire section, was the guy who was like in charge of halftime. <laughs> like he was, he put <laughs> the whole thing together. And we sat there, and 50 feet in front of us basically was a private performance of Beyonce, Bruno Mars, and Chris Martin walking toward us with all the dancers in an empty stadium taking notes from the guy like just down the row from us. And I remember turning to my brother-in-law and sister halfway through and just being like, went on for like a half hour and just being like, hey, uh, for cool big brother moments, this is about what I got. <laughs> this is it. A private <laughs> you know? Beyonce like, show. Exactly. Like, enjoy. And then it ended. And as if all of that wasn't enough, somebody was like, hey, hey, Jay. And we looked down. And as soon as it ended, just behind us, Jay-Z and Blue Ivy had been watching from the stands. <laughs> and they'd come down. And they were now standing in our row talking to the guy that had put on the whole show or whatever it was. And so there's something about, like, the emptiness of the stadium, the fact that my sister, my future brother-in-law, and I watched alone from the same vantage point as the guy in charge of the halftime show and Jay-Z and their daughter was just so overwhelming. And it allowed me to give the coolest big brother moment I ever will. So that is my number one live music moment. They were actually singing, too. So I'll say that. Yo, did you give so. Hova my, my demo tape? Uh, yeah. Oh, oops. Uh, drop the CD. Can I, can I borrow uh, live a few? music? You know, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> all right, great list. Uh, let's get to the worst quickly. I mentioned, you know, Perry Farrell near the top of my my good list. I saw him at the kid stage at Lollapalooza, and he brought up Patty Smith for a couple duets, and I was like, <laughs> oh, cool, interesting moment. Until Patty Smith went on a huge rant about the Middle East and oh boy. literally parents just looking at each other being like, does this crazy lady know she's in front of all these kids? Like it, it would be like the Wiggles, you know, stopping their show and saying all of a sudden, I've got some I've got some literature I want to share with you about the geopolitical realities of Palestine. Like right, it right. was insane dude insane and it was after like perry farrell was singing songs about fucking dolphins and stuff like he clearly yeah, yeah. he he was reading the room right and can't can't quite uh say the same for uh patty smith i mean she's for a patty legend smith. she's a legend and that is a little on brand but i mean take that shit to the main stage bro <laughs> well put well put uh i'll say i'll say this the the worst concert I ever saw was Fish. Uh was also Fish. <laughs> it was the last time I saw them in the summer of 2000, also at Deer Creek. I had pretty much quit them by that point, uh, but some friends from college were on tour, and they were staying with me in Indianapolis. And we went the night before, and I ate a bunch of mushrooms, and they played Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin like 15 times, and I totally freaked out. And that was wild. And so then the next night we went back for the third and final show at Deer Creek that summer. And I was stone cold sober. And Brad, it was, it was the worst concert from start to finish I've ever seen. <laughs> I was so bored. 
they it was just it was awful. Everything about it was like, and I've talked to people since then that they were like, "You were at that show? They revived a song they hadn't played in a thousand shows." And I was like, "Yeah, dude. For as many times as I saw them, that was lost on me." And if you were there, like, God, that show was awful. It was awful, and I never saw them again. Um, even then, like two years ago, um, I've kind of buried the hatchet with fish, and I'm glad they still exist. And Trey's sober and healthy, and there there are people that are still so into them and love them. That's a good thing. But a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine turned to me on New Year's Eve. We were at a friend's house, like for a party, and he was like, "Hey, I have tickets for our company suite for Fish tonight for the New Year's Eve show. You want to go?" And I was like, "Eh, nah. Yeah. I'm kind of enjoying hanging out with the kids." And he was like, "Yeah, me too." And they just went unused. The tickets went unused. So. <laughs> My how things change. Ah, <laughs> so. uh, all right. Well, this is fun, man. And uh, let's uh, we'll, we'll keep rolling back with kind of these creative distractions here while we're uh, yeah. List making is always popular on the internet. Let's yeah. keep doing that. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Let's end with some shout outs. Uh, shout out to Stephen Brawl from the Pirates. Um, look, I said to him point blank, "There's no baseball, so this better turn into a double album." Yeah, damn right, dude. I mean, like. What's stopping you from doing Act Two and Overture? Like, let's keep it going, dude. Well, so. look, his his album is available on Apple, Spotify, wherever. I bought it on iTunes. Uh, go check it out. Really cool songs, kind of all across the map of the various genres and subgenres of Broadway. And I mean, look, he's super talented, and I'm just curious to see where he takes it. Um, and kind of bummed out for him that it, you know. Uh, at, that it, it came out right at the worst possible time. But hey, look, you're not leaving the house, hopefully. So do the guys sound and download for it. it. Yeah, let's let's do it. Uh Gareth, you wanna give me a shout outs? Uh shout out for Steven Brault as well for just being the guy in Major League Baseball who's also into show tunes. That's rad. And uh shout out to Perry Farrell for continuing to appear <laughs> on all of our lists and for having endless stories about him. So <laughs> And shout out to Kimberly Austin, the random song <laughs> no one knows that has now made its like eleventh appearance on this podcast. Damn right. So all right, uh, and with that, in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty.